through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Well, happy Easter to you. My name is Josh, and I serve as a pastor in this congregation And it is a joy to celebrate the resurrection with you with loud drums and guitars and louder singing and hearts overflowing with joy. It's a joy to be here with you. I want to invite you to keep your Bible open to John chapter 20 because this morning we're going to follow this account, this eyewitness account of the very first Easter Sunday. And we're going to pay attention to the mystery of the empty tomb and the message of Easter. 
And I think it's important to slow down and pay attention to the mystery of the empty tomb and the message of Easter because even while we're singing loud and joyful songs about the resurrection of Jesus, I know that as we walk in on this Easter Sunday, many of us walk in with different emotions Different experiences in different places spiritually, in different points in our life journey. And I understand that as many of us walk in on Easter Sunday morning, our primary emotion is not the emotion that says happy. Many of us walk through the door even on this happy Sunday morning with the sun shining and the grass turning greener and loud, joyful songs. But instead of our hearts saying, I feel like saying this is a happy day, for some of us, we feel like there is more sorrow than joy. Some of us arrive today feeling like there are more tears than songs of happiness. Some of us arrive with more questions than we have certainty about the resurrection of Jesus. Some of us arrive today not singing, happy day, you've washed my sins away. Some of us arrive today not sure where we stand today or perhaps even feeling distant from God today. And with our Bibles open, paying attention to God's version of what the first Easter Sunday was like, I want to tell you that if you have arrived today aware of sorrow or skepticism or distance from God, you're in the right place. And God's word and the message of Easter have something to say to you today. But before we get there to the message of Easter, we're going to pay attention for a few minutes to the mystery of the the empty tomb. The setting of our story is when it is still dark. John chapter 20 verse 1 tells us that Mary Magdalene is coming to a place where there are tombs. Cave-like tombs carved into the sides of the hill. And she knows that Jesus that the body of Jesus has been laid in one of these tombs. She knows that Jesus died because she was there. Even when many of Jesus' disciples had fled the scene on Friday afternoon while Jesus was being crucified, John chapter 19 verse 25 tells us that Mary Magdalene was one of only a few courageous women who had continued, quote, standing by the cross of Jesus all the way to the end. And she knew that Joseph of Arimathea had donated his tomb for the body of Jesus. She knew about the burial 
before sundown on Friday. And now on the first day of the week, on Sunday, she walks toward the tomb, but it's it's that part of the morning that is still dark, John wants us to know. I pay attention to that detail about darkness because the author of the Gospel of John is like a skilled poet or a skilled filmmaker. He's using the light and dark motif to signal things for us as readers as we read our way through John's Gospel. And so even if you've only read John chapter 1, the opening couple of paragraphs of the Gospel of John, we know that John is telling us a story about how the light shines in the darkness. So I take it as not an insignificant detail that Mary is walking through a kind of darkness Which is to say, this passage begins when things are still not clear. The triumph of light over darkness has already happened. But it is not yet fully visible. In John chapter 20 verse 1. And so as Mary arrives at the tomb, she encounters something mysterious. The stone that blocks the entrance to the tomb is rolled away. And what does Mary do when she sees that the stone is rolled away? You know, on Easter Sunday, we do things like this. We say, Christ is risen. And then y'all will say, That's right. We sing songs about the empty tomb, the empty grave, and we respond by saying, Happy Day! We sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia, right? We've got all these things that when we think about the empty tomb, our first response is resurrection and joy. But do you notice the first response on that first Easter Sunday? is not a response of disciples discovering the empty tomb and saying, Christ the Lord is risen today. Alleluia. Their first response is much more normal. They go to a place where a dead body was laid a couple of days earlier. And when they find that the body is not there and the tomb is empty, they interpret this fact as tragedy upon tragedy. Grave robberies were much more common in the ancient world than they are now. There was money to be made by breaking into a tomb and stealing some of the expensive spices or other things that might be found in a tomb. And so when Mary finds the stone rolled away, look with me for a moment at at verse 2, at what she interprets out of the empty tomb at first. She runs back and she finds Simon Peter and the other disciple The other disciple we understand to be John. She runs and finds Peter and John. And she says to 
them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. The initial response is to assume that the empty tomb means that the grief of injustice has now been added to the grief of loss. And so we come to what we might call kind of the first episode in the action of this story. The first episode when Peter and John look into it. When they look into what has happened. The story tells us, beginning in verse 3, that Peter and John hustle their way over to the tomb. You know, grown men like me don't run all that often. But when we do, whether it was stated to be a race or not, if we're the one who wins, we want to let you know about it. And so verse 4 seems to me to add a charming note of credibility and authenticity as John records in his gospel that for a while Peter and I were running side by side, but let's just say Peter didn't get there first. (laughs) Now what happens when they get to the mystery of the empty tomb? Verse 5 tells us that when John reaches the empty tomb, he stoops down and he looks into it. When Peter arrives next at the gate, uh, at the doorway to the empty tomb, he also stoops down and looks into it. But more than just looking in, Peter walks all the way inside to this room where the body had been laid and he begins to look around. When John and Peter arrive at the mystery of the empty tomb, while it is still dark, while things are still not yet clear, what do they do? They look into it. And let me pause long enough to say that if the meaning of the empty tomb is not yet clear to you, This passage, this narrative, this account is written in such a way as to invite you to look into it for yourself. To invite you in a way to spend some time stooping down and looking into it. To find out what did the eyewitnesses say about what they found What came about as a result of this tomb being empty? This passage invites you to look into it for yourself and to come to your own conclusion. In our text, Peter and John look into the empty tomb. In a court of law, in their time and place, the testimony of two men is considered to be reliable evidence. And so, as 
Peter and John look into the tomb and find it to be empty. Now two men can testify and sign their names to this legally verifiable fact. The tomb is empty. But beyond being empty, which is to say without a corpse, what they discover inside the tomb is kind of intriguing, isn't it? They find grave cloths lying there and the face cloth folded neatly. Parents, if you've struggled with getting your kids to fold their clothes, this is one of the best verses in the Bible for you to memorize. I'm joking. Don't use the Bible like that. But it's not wrong to fold your clothes either. What is this stuff about the grave cloths and the folded face cloth? What does this all have to do with anything? At one level, the detail is simply recorded for credibility. To tell us what happened accurately. So that we know the facts from the eyewitnesses themselves. Remember that the worry was that somebody had stolen the body of Jesus. But if somebody was going to steal Jesus' body, they wouldn't break into the tomb and then take the time to unwrap the decaying corpse, the decaying corpse while they're still inside the tomb. And in addition to that, if somebody was going to rob a grave, why would they leave the expensive spices behind, right? You see, it would be first of all gross to unwrap the body and leave the cloths behind. And it would be secondly, dumb for a criminal to do this. So these details take away the idea that Jesus' decomposing corpse is simply stolen. It adds a note of historical credibility to this account. But at another level, these details about the grave cloths also add to the wonder of the mystery that Mary and Peter and John are just beginning to uncover. You know, the disciples had been there when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, brought him back from the grave. One of Jesus' most remarkable miracles But when Lazarus came stumbling out of his grave, John tells us in John chapter 11, he still got grave cloths wrapped all around him. And he hasn't figured out how to peel off this face cloth thing yet. In other words, when Jesus brings Lazarus back from the grave, Lazarus is still trying to figure out how to untangle himself from all of this death stuff. And John and Peter and probably Mary had been there. And as the disciples remembered this scene later, I think they noticed that with the resurrection of Jesus himself, it was of a completely different order than the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus did not get up and stumble out trying to figure out how to untangle himself from death. 
Rather, Jesus so thoroughly defeated death that he stepped right out of the grave cloths. And he had time to neatly fold the face cloth and leave it lying in the corner. According to Scripture, a few other people had been brought back from the dead throughout history. But what Jesus experienced, get this, was not like any other resurrection prior to His. Jesus' resurrection was a resurrection of a completely different order. It was the beginning of something brand new in history. And notice in verses 8 and 9 that as John, as an eyewitness, is there looking into it and considering what has happened here with this empty tomb, this is the moment when understanding begins to dawn in John's heart. John says in verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. As John recounts as an eyewitness what happened with that empty tomb, He offers a very honest admission. He offers a very honest admission that even though he had been around Jesus' teachings for years, even though he was well acquainted with prayer and with worship, even though he had been taking some steps of discipleship, or what would appear by all appearances to be discipleship, John says very honestly, I didn't get it. I didn't understand yet to that point. The penny hadn't really dropped as it related to my faith. And so John tells us very honestly, he showed up that first Easter lacking faith, And without an understanding informed by Scripture of what the empty tomb meant. But as he looks into it, this is where everything begins to change for John. How about his friend Peter? Why isn't he mentioned? Remember the last time we saw Peter in John's Gospel, he was busy denying Christ three times. Now he runs to look into the empty tomb. He shows up that first Easter Sunday in need of forgiveness, in need of restoration. And as he begins to look into it, It's a beginning of a new chapter, as we'll read in John chapter 21, if we keep going, for him as well. It's right there while looking into the empty tomb that faith is fortified. 
that the meaning of the scriptures becomes clear. That restoration and reconciliation with God begins to click into gear. Now Peter and John exit stage left, as it were. And the second episode of action begins in our text. Now Mary, in verse 11, is weeping outside of the tomb. And what does Mary do? She does the same thing that Peter and John have done. She looks into it for herself. And as she looks into it, Mary discovers something that is profoundly holy. Just a little bit of background that Jewish people in the time and place when the New Testament was written would have been familiar with. The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, talks about the Ark of the Covenant. The place where atoning sacrifice is made. The place where blood is shed to reconcile people with God. It's a rectangle with two cherubim, two angelic figures looking down at the place of sacrifice. Now Mary looks into the empty tomb And she sees a mystery that is profoundly holy. Here is a rectangle. Much like the place throughout Jewish history where blood sacrifices had been made, where atonement was made for the sins of the people. And two angels looking down on it from either end. While she's looking into the tomb... Somebody says something to her and there's this fun little interchange here. She supposes the person to be a gardener. The angels have a question for her. Woman, why are you weeping? The gardener has two questions for her. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Apparently, the angels and this mysterious gardener understand that the mystery of the empty tomb is going to have something to say to her tears. And it's going to have something to say to that searching In her soul. She turns around and she says in verse 15, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turns and says to him, Teacher. (laughs) What's the tipping point in this story? It's interesting that while Mary is still 
looking into it for herself, Jesus comes and finds her. While she is still looking into it for herself, before she has figured everything out, before she can even recognize Jesus, Jesus comes and finds her in her searching and in her weeping. And he addresses her with kindness and gentleness, with questions. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? But what is the tipping point in this story? Jesus finds her. And it is not just seeing Jesus. It's hearing his voice. It's the word of Jesus that awakens clarity in Mary Magdalene's heart and life. The answer to her tears and the answer to her searching is not just an experience. Just as the disciples saw the empty tomb and came to understand it in light of the scriptures, so Mary meets Jesus and she comes to understand him how? Through his word. And I think John records this very carefully and thoughtfully. Because if all we know about this story is that Mary Magdalene saw Jesus and she believed, then we'd say that's not fair because I don't get to see Jesus face to face. But throughout John chapter 20 and 21, there is this ongoing tension about seeing and believing, culminating in the passage about My guy, Doubting Thomas, who says, I will not believe unless I see. And while he's still doubting, Jesus, in his compassion, seeks him out as well. And the end of that is Jesus assuring Thomas, blessed are those who believe and have not seen in the way that you have. But on what basis do we believe then? On the basis of the same scriptures that provided clarity for John and Peter. And on the basis of the words of Jesus that are recorded for us here in God's words. We too have a firm foundation on which to rest our faith. In the first episode in this passage, Peter and John look into the empty tomb and they walk away believing. They arrive with uncertainties and with a sense of needing forgiveness and needing restoration. And faith begins to dawn. Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb still weeping, still trying to make sense of everything. Still seeking someone. And it is while she looks into the empty tomb that the word of Jesus 
sinks in. And she bows in humble adoration before him. That's the mystery of the empty tomb that we see here in this passage. But what does John chapter 20 tell us then about the message of Easter? If that's what happened on the first Easter Sunday, what does it mean and what does it mean for us today? Look with me again, if you would, at verses 17 and 18 in John chapter 20. Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. What is the message of Easter? Let me show you three things very briefly about the message of Easter on that first Easter Sunday and what the message of, and about what the message of Easter means for us today as well. What is the message of Easter? First of all, the message of Easter brings hope for belonging in the family of God. Don't overlook these family terms, these relationship terms, these loving terms that are included here in verse 17. When Jesus sends Mary Magdalene to go and represent the message and the explanation of what the empty tomb means to the others, he first of all says, go to whom? To my brothers. And remember, these are the clowns who scattered in fear while Jesus was being crucified. These guys haven't looked so good the last few days. One of them denied him three times. One of them is about to say, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and side, quote, I will never believe. As John has already admitted, they didn't get it. But here is the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ overflowing with love such that he says, would you take a message not to those foolish clowns who keep stumbling all over themselves, who don't get it and keep making mistakes. No, he says, would you go and take a message to my brothers? And what is the message about? It's a message about belonging in the family of God. It's a message that Jesus says has to do with, quote, my father and your father. The message of Easter tells us that however distant we have felt from God in the past, however far removed we have felt from him, Because of what Jesus has done for us. Not because of how few times we've stumbled and failed or how well we've figured it out or whatever it may be. Because of Jesus. You and I can belong in the family of God. Knowing 
his father as our father. A status in the kingdom of heaven as secure as being one of the brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ is held out and offered to you. In fact, this is a great part of what the gospel of John has been all about. Back in John chapter 1, John had explained up front what he was talking about. He said, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John says it even more emphatically in a letter that he writes to a church full of believers like us. A church full of believers who had stumbled, who didn't always get it who sometimes failed, who sometimes doubted. He writes to a church full of believers like us and he says, would you see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we get to be called children of God and so we actually are. The message of Easter rests on historical details of things, events that took place 2,000 years ago. On a Passover weekend around Jerusalem. But the message of Easter is not just about what happened back then. Based on what happened back then. Rooted in what happened back then. There is a message for us today. And the message says this. You can rest secure in belonging In the family of God. Knowing Jesus as your father. And before I move on. Can I add this little detail. Only in passing. This is a sweet. Moment as two congregations. Become one congregation together. This is a sweet Sunday. A sweet new start for us. And with this new start, I'm sure there will be challenges and bumps along the way. But you know what is the cement that can hold us together? It is this, that Jesus has said to you and you and you and you, I'm going to my father and y'all's father. We are part of of one family with one Father through one Lord Jesus Christ full of one Spirit. And that sense of belonging in His family, not because of how well we figured it out, not because of how clean our background is, not because of how we've lived our lives, but because of Jesus That security we have in the family of God is the security we have in our unity together as well. Let's not miss that. The message of Easter tells us about hope for belonging in the family of God. And the message of Easter also tells us about hope for the future. Jesus uses this language of ascending or rising up. 
or going up toward heaven several times in this passage. As he sends Mary Magdalene with the message, he says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. Why is the ascension of Jesus good news? The answer comes from about three days earlier. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus was in the upper room talking with his disciples about what was to come. It was, as I understand it, the same night when Jesus broke the bread, saying, this is my body which is for you, and gave the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. And at that same meal in the same upper room, Jesus had said this to his disciples, John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. The message of Easter is a message about belonging in the family of the Father, not because of what we've done, but because of what He's done for us. And it's also a message of hope for the future. Why? Because Jesus has promised that if he ascends to the Father, he's not ascending to escape, he's ascending to prepare. And he's preparing a place for his beloved. And he will come and he will bring us to himself that where he is, we may also be forevermore. Um, among my favorite flowers in the world, is it okay if guys have favorite flowers? I don't know about that. Maybe I should rewind and undo that admission. But it's too late. Among my favorite flowers in the world are the crocus flowers. The ones that pop up before anything else here in the Midwest. Those little bluish violet flowers that fight their way through the frozen soil of winter and burst forth with the first flashes of color. Maybe some of you who don't know what a crocus is will think of the joy of a bright yellow daffodil. Those brave first flowers that fight their way through the winter and open in glory. Why are those flowers so wonderful? Not necessarily because the crocus or the daffodil is the most lovely of all flowers aesthetically, but because it is the most hopeful of all flowers. You know that when you see a crocus or a daffodil in bloom, winter has been defeated. And it may still be 40 degrees outside. 
But day by day, or at least week by week, winter is losing its grip. And I tell you this, certainly massive changes are underway as soon as the crocus or the daffodil begins to, begins to flourish, right? C.S. Lewis, a professor at Oxford University in England, once observed that Christians should say, Jesus Christ rose again 2,000 years ago. In the same way that we say, I saw a crocus outside today. Which is to say that his marvelous resurrection of a completely different order than any other resurrection prior to his is not simply his own flourishing. It's a sign and a symbol that shouts to the universe, massive changes are coming. And it may still be awfully dark outside. And we may still lose loved ones. And we may still experience injustices that make us weep. And we may still have griefs and sorrows that reach to the depths and corners of our hearts and pour out with tears that we sometimes can't even explain with words. And we may still feel our sin and our guilt and our separation from God deep in our soul. And we still have reason to hate that enemy, the twin enemy of sin and death. It may still be dark outside. But because Jesus Christ was risen from the dead 2,000 years ago, massive changes are coming. And so as Jesus sends out this Easter message to his disciples, as that Easter message rings across the, across the centuries and around the world so that it makes it 2,000 years ago to faraway places like Illinois, we hear the good news that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and we hear it like seeing a crocus burst forth in glory and we say, however dark it may be outside, massive changes are still to come. Because my Lord died and He is risen and He is returning and He will make all things new. If I go... I will prepare a place for you and I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. This is part of the hope of Easter. The message of Easter tells us about hope for belonging together in the family of God. It tells us about hope forevermore. Hope for a future that is immeasurably better than our experience of life stained by sin and death and darkness. And it's a message about hope that needs to be shared. Hope that is meant to be shared with the brothers and sisters. Hope that is meant to be celebrated, not just me, myself, and I feeling hopeful. 
but meant to be celebrated together. And meant to be celebrated together, not in such a way that we just become a happy little cul-de-sac, but meant to be cherished and treasured and celebrated together. This hope of truly belonging in God's family, this hope of the world made new and life forevermore and joy with Him, it's too good for us to hoard it. It's meant to be shared with one another. And it's meant to be spread throughout the neighborhoods that God has providentially put you in. He put you in the house that you're in with the hope that's in your heart about belonging in the family of God. Not because of who you are, but because of what Jesus has done. The hope that's in your heart about life beyond and over death. He put you there in that house with neighbors who need to know about it. This is a hope that tells us that we together belong in the family of God because of Jesus. It's a hope that tells us there is life way beyond death. And it's a hope that we are meant to treasure and tell to the world together. This is the message of Easter. And so... Some of us arrived here today honestly feeling distant from God. I want you to hear the message of Easter for you. You are invited to draw near to God, to be loved and cherished, secure as His beloved child today. Some of us arrived here like Mary Magdalene on that first Easter Sunday with tears in our eyes. I want you to hear the message of Easter. The resurrection of Jesus is just the beginning. And there is hope beyond this world which is so stained by sin and suffering and death. And for all of us, however familiar we may have been with the teachings of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus in years past. The mystery of the empty tomb invites all of us to go a little bit deeper. To go a little bit further. To see a little bit more clearly the glory of our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Who has died, who is risen, and who will one day return. I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements